For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Holy Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Hey, well, welcome to Norton Online. We're glad you guys are with us, whether you're part of the campus or whether you kind of tune in this way. We're so glad that you're with us. I would love to hear your story. I, we say this often, you know, but I'm just throwing my line in the water. If you're someone who tunes in regularly online, I'd love to hear uh, your story, how you're connected with us, hear where uh, God has you, what he's teaching you, questions you have. We'd love to engage with you that way. want to let you know about this. If you are in the area, even if you're a little bit outside the area, this is worth driving into. Uh, on October the 6th and 7th, it's a Friday night, Saturday, uh, we're doing Feed My Starving Children, partnering with our community to do good uh, for the sake of those in need in the world, where we kind of turn our gymnasium and a lot of our church into kind of a packing facility where we pack meals for for children around the world who are in need. We would love to have you come be a part of that. You can sign up online, just go to our website. Uh, such important work, plenty of spots available. We'd love to have you partner with us in that way. As we jump in today, I don't think it's out of line for me to say, I think it's kind of a universally agreed upon thing, that the first Jurassic Park is one of the best movies of all time. Like it just is. Like they, I, if you haven't seen it, I don't, go watch the trailer. You know, that ought to do it. But they're, they're I think they have literal dinosaurs they filmed. I don't know if there's another way to do it. Like this was in 1993, they found live brontosaurus and they filmed it. The beautiful score, the whole concept of the plot, it's just, it's just tense enough, thrilling enough. There's dinosaurs involved. The love story, you're not really sure where it's at, leaves you questioning. It's one of the best movies of all time, right? Well, they, about a year into my marriage, they came out with uh, the, the sequels later on, you know, about 20 something, I don't know, years later. And so I was so excited to go see Jurassic World. Took my wife with me to go see Jurassic World at the drive-ins. So we had to suffer through one of the thousand Marvel movies, which are horrible. And we, we eventually got to Jurassic World. Now, if you go to the drive-ins, you have to wait till it gets dark. And so the second movie usually starts at, I don't know, 11 p.m. I'm, this, my, my childhood is just like, it's about to be complete. Getting to see Jurassic uh, World. Finishing off the, this just epic of my life. The movie starts... And Sarah falls asleep immediately. So for two and a half hours, I am engaged with dinosaurs. There's some struggling things in there, like talking raptors, which wasn't a fan of that. But I am engaged with this movie. And the movie ends. It's like 1 a.m. She, she wakes up. She goes, that movie was terrible. I'm like, what? what? She's like, that was a terrible movie. I'm like, you slept the whole time. She goes, we all know what happened, Aiden. Everything was fine. The dinosaurs were in their cages. At some point, they get out and they eat everybody. Now, she's not wrong because that's essentially what happens in every Jurassic Park movie, right? She, she knew about the movie, right? She, she like knew about the plot of Jurassic Park, about what happened, but she was missing something, right? And so this summer, as a good husband that I am, 
I invited her to watch the original Jurassic Park with me, right? I'm like, will you just do this for me? She's like, of course, I'm your wife. I committed to this for my life. And so we watched the original Jurassic Park together. And as you would expect, with about 45 minutes of the movie left, right about when the raptors are in the kitchen, she falls asleep again, right? But this time, the next day, she kind of says, hey, Aiden. I say, yes. She says, do you think we could finish Jurassic Park? I, I would like to see how it ends. And so we finished the next day, Jurassic Park, the original Jurassic Park. And she went from knowing about Jurassic Park to actually truly knowing Jurassic Park. She got it. She saw the brontosaurus, she heard the score. She, she saw how the dinosaurs originated. She got it. She went from knowing about it, it's just dinosaurs eating people, to knowing about it, right? When we look at Ephesians, we've been going through the book of Ephesians. Don't worry, it's all gonna connect. We've been going through this book of Ephesians. One pastor, Tyler Staten, on the, he says the first, the first three chapters of Ephesians is the gospel in the stars. We see this beauty, this wonder, this mystery that Paul talks about, these long run-on sentences, these big powerful words that paint the majesty of the gospel and what Jesus has accomplished through the, through the story of the gospel, the gospel in the stars. In the second half of the book, which we're gonna start next week, chapters four through six is almost the gospel in the dirt, kind of the practical, do this, stop this, engage with this, focus on this, live this out. It goes from the gospel to the stars to the gospel in the dirt. And today, the passage that we're jumping into that you heard read, is the end of chapter three is this bridge between these two halves. But this is not just simply a prayer that Paul gives us. He prays for the church. He prays that, that we might grab a hold of some things. And I would challenge you, it's not just simply a prayer, but it's an invitation into the fullness of a relationship with God. And now the question I want us to ask today, that I want us to keep in our minds, that I want us to wrestle with, to contemplate, to explore, I, I'm not sure we'll come to a satisfactory answer at the end. I, I'm not sure that Jesus is just a steps program that we get to the end to and get figured out. But what I want us to explore, contemplate, wrestle with is just this simple question. What does it mean to go from knowing about God to knowing God? Because this seems to be something that Paul is getting at in this invitation. What does it mean to go from knowing about God to knowing God and maybe asking ourselves, being honest, do I really care? Do I really want to truly know God? Or am I just cool with praying the prayer going to heaven when I die? Now, don't mishear me when I, when I say this, that, that Paul talks about going from knowledge to experience. Like the knowledge is of utmost importance as well. That, that knowing about God is important. We must have good theology, right belief, right understanding, sound doctrine. Like this kind of goes without saying, but we got to say it, right? We got to say it. Eugene Peterson, one of my favorite pastors, he says, theology without spirituality is dead, but spirituality without theology is mushy. I want you to think about this because all of us fall in different places. For some of you, you get obsessed with certain things about the Bible, history, geography, theology, how this connects to this, revelation, all this stuff. But if you're honest, sometimes you're like, I'm not really sure the last time I, I, I prayed to Jesus, communed with Jesus, walked on Jesus. There's a lot that I know about, but I'm not always sure that I'm abiding with Jesus, right? And in the same sense, maybe you're not obsessed with theology, but you may be someone who maybe has a little doubt, some questions, and so everything when it comes to God is philosophical. Everything is kind of the, if God did this, why wouldn't he do this? Why does he let this? Why doesn't? And it's kind of this big math equation, right? All important stuff, but that's where the entirety of your faith hangs out, right? And for others of you, you, you don't need answers to everything. You don't need to solve the whole math equation. You're like, I just want to connect with Jesus. I love the worship songs and I feel connected to things. 
But sometimes we gotta be careful because what can happen is if we aren't rooted in sound doctrine, we can get confused. Now, was that Jesus who said that or was that Buddha? Did I read that on Pinterest or was that the Apostle Paul? And we can kind of float around, be tossed around by the waves is what Paul would say. And so there's this connection that we must go from knowledge. We have to have a grounding. But Paul says it's not enough just to live there. We gotta go from knowing about it to actually knowing God, right? And I think about this, I'm a man who grew up in the church and for all of our evangelical language, if I can even use that word, that what we believe isn't about a religion, but it's about a relationship. It can be hard as I talk with people to quantify what that relationship truly looks like and what it actually means because you and I both know it's easier to know about God. It's easier to know about something, right? To read up on something, get the facts about something, read a biography on someone, watch a YouTube tutorial, like that's easier to manage and figure out. Especially when it comes to God, it's much harder, much more dangerous to trust to allow him to change us, to sit silently, to engage by faith, and to be changed by a living, inactive, dangerous God. It's a lot more challenging. But before we jump in, I want us to ask ourselves, why, why can't we just stay at knowing about God? Why is it okay? Why can't we just stay there? Why is it not okay? Why is that simply not enough? Why desire to move from just an intellectual awareness or this conceptual idea of a deity? I think a couple things. I think the first thing is this, that Jesus says we can know the scriptures and we can miss him. We can have the densest theology. We can memorize the Bible. We can have great philosophical understandings of things, but we can miss Jesus. The Pharisees in the Bible did it. In John 5, Jesus says this, you can know the scriptures, but miss Jesus. Man, I don't want that to be me, right? I don't want to miss Jesus. I think it's important that we go from just knowing about God to knowing God because for some of us, we have this cognitive dissonance, right? Like what we think about God and what we experience with God feel different because it feels like we're almost always looking at God from the outside in, like a problem that needs solved, like a philosophical concept that we need uh, figured out, that we have these theoretical philosophical questions. And like I said, why doesn't God do this or do that? But God doesn't invite us into just knowing about him. He invites us into a way of life. And I question if too often those of us that struggle with faith, that walk away from faith, that maybe to use modern language have deconstructed our faith, that we've walked away from something that we haven't ever actually truly engaged in because Jesus doesn't invite us just to know about him. He calls us to walk with him. That we, God cannot be looked at under a telescope or a microscope, but we believe God with our feet. Almost like a Chinese finger trap. The only way to figure this thing out is to move inward. And I think it's important to go from knowing about God to truly knowing God, because I don't know about you, but I don't want to be someone who has heard that honey is sweet, who has watched documentaries about how honey is made and how delightful honey is to watch people enjoy honey, but to never taste honey for myself. That I want the depths of what Paul says, the fullness of God. And if we must move from knowledge to into experience of where this knowledge plays into our lives, I want to go. Because there's a fullness that Paul is inviting us into today. And in the same way that this prayer today bridges the gospel and the stars to the gospel on the earth, that this prayer kind of bridges these two parts of this passage. What I want to do is I just kind of want to walk that bridge. And maybe a better picture for today is you almost picture a river and crossing a river with stones. And you kind of jump 
from stone to stone as we cross a river today, what I want to do is just lay out some stones that I think Paul puts in this passage. First kind of stones I want us to jump from as we look at this is almost an external awe to an internal wonder. Look what Paul says in verse 14. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derive its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now we got to start with perspective. Jesus teaches us to pray this way. In the, the, the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, he says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He gives us this heavenly perspective is how Jesus teaches us to pray. We have to start with perspective because if God is small in our hearts and minds, the invitation he has for us will instill no wonder into our soul. I, I honestly, as a pastor, I often, and even in my own life, I, I, I wrestle with, I ask myself, how do I communicate the bigness of God? Is that something I can even do, right? Like, do I like show you a big picture of the galaxies and how this galaxy is billions of light years from this galaxy and this galaxy is billions of guacaguats from this galaxy? I don't know. Do I show you pictures of galaxies? Do I describe his wrath and his glory? Do I string together a sentence of all-encompassing words that communicate such enormity? Is that how... I get us to wonder at the greatness and awe of God. As I was thinking this week, I think sometimes our problem, I know my problem, is that I begin with the fact that I think I am too big. It's not that I don't think God's big enough, I just think that I'm bigger than I, than I really am. My son Camden, he's four in some change, and he's started preschool this year. And uh, My wife said they were in the preschool pickup line or drop-off line. And, uh, and he just said to her, you know, he's, his world's getting bigger. He's learning more things. And he says, Mommy, am I smarter than you? <laughs> she says, nope. He goes, but I know a lot more about trains than you. She goes, you're not smarter than me. <laughs> right? Like he's kind of been testing boundaries. And, and my, my boy Camden, he may know in these four weeks of preschool, he may know more now than he did four weeks ago. But he's still a long way off from knowing what his mama knows about life and about experience and about the ins and outs of the world that we live in. And I think sometimes we can interact with God in a similar fashion, right? It's not that God is small, but it's just that we're, we're not that much smaller than he is. We're pretty big. And I think we interact with God in this way that we make absolute our opinions and our perspectives because for the last 500 years, we have been enlightened. Our, our weather apps and Pinterest-based wisdom has made us pithy, has made us informed, and we have filled our minds with information. We've mapped the topography of the earth to Google Maps, collected the wisdom and poetry of history onto our iPads, yet for some reason we are still killing each other, medicating our way to positivity. We wrestle with loneliness, take our anger out on digital versions of our neighbor. We are addicted, anxious, busy, and bored. And perhaps we don't need to begin with maps of the universe out there to grasp the greatness of God, but we need to begin with humility in here. And I believe that is why Paul says, for this reason, he kneels before the Father. He begins with a posture of humility, the external awe and wonder of who God is. Eugene Peterson says this. He says, the physical act of bowing my knees before the Father is an act of reverence. It is also an act of voluntary defenselessness. While on my knees, I cannot run away. I cannot assert myself. I place myself in a position of willed submission, vulnerable to the will of the person before whom I am bowing. On my knees, I'm no longer in a position to flex my muscles, strut or cower, hide in the shadows or show off on the stage. 
I become less so that I can become aware of more. Whew. I assume a posture that lets me see what reality looks like without distorting lens of either my timid avoidance or my aggressive domination. I set my agenda aside and for a time become still present to God. Humility allows me to begin to grasp the awe and wonder of God and I begin to let his perspective shape me. When I sit in the Psalms and see his power over the nations proclaimed, when I pause just to look up at the stars, when I read the history of this thing called the church and see that I am part of a collective family in history, when I begin to reckon with the fact that if there is a God who is eternally existent, creator, maybe there's more depths for me to plumb. Perhaps at some point I must stop putting God on trial and start taking him at his word. And as I begin to catch a glimpse of the glory and the awe of God as I humble myself, I jump from this rock of external wonder to this, or of external awe to internal wonder. Look what Paul says. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, every family drives its name. I pray, this is Paul's prayer for us, that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, in the depths of who you are, in your emotions, and in your desires, and in your just your desire for life, in the, the depths of who you are, your fears, your anxieties, your joys, your longings so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I'd underline that in your Bible, that as we humble ourselves before God, the ultimate goal is that Christ may dwell in our hearts. This is what Jesus is talking about in John 15. We gives this picture of the vine and the branches and us abiding in and with God. He's giving this picture that he calls us to abide with him, to remain in him, to make our home with him, that we become attentive, not just to God out there, but to God in here, in our inner being. And that in response to the beauty and power of God, I'm compelled to, to figure out how to keep Christ in front of me. There's an old prayer from hundreds of years ago. It says, Christ be before me, behind me, above and below me. May Christ be all around me. I think that's what Paul's getting at, that out of the glorious riches of our Father, that Christ may dwell in our inner beings through faith. The psalmist in Psalm 139 says, You search me, Lord, you know me. You know when I sit, when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar, you discern my going out, my laying down, you're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in and behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Look what verse 6 says, and I think this is what Paul is trying to capture. The psalmist says, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It, it's too lofty for me to attain. It's just, it's just too much. There's this, this wonder, it's too wonderful for me to grab a hold of that the God who is the all-encompassing, all-existing creator, that he wants to know me. And I don't mean that in like a Disney Channel cute little way, but he has created us. He has pursued us. The gospel is a story of God running downhill towards us and he desires community with us. J.I. Packer, an old theologian, wrote in his book, Knowing God, all my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I'll be honest with you, sometimes I'm, I'm kind of cynical, right? I'm just kind of like, like there's a piece of me that's like, just do what God says and stay quiet, stay out of the way, right? And sometimes I have a hard time believing that, that the God of all creation desires to know us. Not just us as people as a general concept, but you on your phone, on your computer screen, watching your TV, that he desires to know us. 
And that may feel silly to you, that's okay, but the psalmist says it's just too wonderful, too lofty for him to even grab a hold of. But the wonder in our inner being begins with the fact that God has pursued knowing me, and this eternal wonder takes root when we plumb the reality that he wants to know us. And we begin to grasp the dimensions of his love. And as we go from external awe to internal wonder, as we cross this bridge of the gospel and the stars to the gospel on the earth, we jump from internal wonder to this dimensional mystery. We'll say it that way today. This dimensional mystery that we're not ever going to fully get a hold of, but we are called as followers of Jesus to wrestle with, to walk into for the rest of our lives. Look what Paul says. He says, and I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people. And I can't go into this today, but this is a communal thing, my friends. This is not you with your AirPods and your personal individualistic relationship with Jesus. This is us as a community that we would grasp God together as we worship together, that our inner beings would be touched by the presence of Jesus and that we might collectively plumb the dimensions of the love of God, that we would grasp how wide, how long, how high, and how deep is the love of Christ. The dimensions of this whole thing. D.L. Moody, an old uh, evangelist, says this. In Ephesians 3.18, that's this verse, we are told of the breadth and the length and the depth and the height of God's love. He says, many of us think we know something about God's love. But centuries show that we've never found out much about it. He, He uses this analogy. Columbus discovered America. But what did he know about the Great Lakes, about the rivers, the forests, the Mississippi Valley? He died without knowing much about what he had discovered. So many of us have discovered something of the love of God. But there are heights, depths, lengths that we do not know. This love is a great ocean. And we are required to plunge into it before we really know anything about it. Uh, This is, this is, uh, you just feel like you're skimming the surface of all this. But I just want to look at this passage, these dimensions, that he talks about the width of God's love. I think as we look at the life of Christ, it demonstrates the width like the, the size of the net of the people that Jesus is after. He interacted with, with sketchy folks. <laughs> Jesus interacted with some sketchy characters. Part of his disciples were political revolutionaries. That he constantly is coming face to face with downtrodden, broken women. With outcast lepers who were exiled from society. With Pharisees who were like questioning and deconstructing their faith. That he, he asked God to forgive the Roman authorities who were actively nailing him to a plank of wood. My, the net is wide, my friends. I want you just to bring to mind the width from, from on one side. Picture someone who is your enemy, who annoys you, who you get frustrated with. Like, like the net is that wide to the other side to maybe someone who you think God has forgotten about. The homeless in LA, Afghan refugees, rebels in the Congo, children in Ukraine. That from our enemies, the people that we think that people have, that God has forgotten, that God has not forgotten the people that you think he has. And he remembers the billions of people that you don't even know exist because he has created them and he has put his image in their lives. They are created in his image and they have value and dignity and worth. And no matter our sin, no matter our geopolitical location, that God's heart is wide for people. He forgives the people that you can't even begin to forgive and he remembers the people that you don't even know exist. And the same God who knit you together, knit them together, and he loves them. Do you know how we know? Because for God so loved the world. Your world is only a couple hundred people people large, but God's world is over seven billion people. There is one door. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, but it's a big door, my friends. 
And sometimes our struggle to forgive someone in our lives is evidence to the fact that his love is wider than we realize. Because if I can't forgive him, but God can, man, that door is probably wider than I think. And if we admit our concern for the forgotten, I think that points to God's image within us and his wide love for all people. The dimensions of God's love is wide. But it's not just wide, but it's long. Now we saw this in Ephesians. We talked about this in chapter 1, that the love of Christ before the foundation. You think, you think Jesus just started loving you when you listened to a good sermon or a Hillsong song? I don't know if we still listen to Hillsong. Is that okay? I don't know. A Phil Wickham song? A hymn? That you're like, oh, now, now Jesus loves me because it started to make sense to you. My friend, Jesus has loved you before the foundations of the world. Before the foundations of the world were created, in, in love God predestined us for adoption to sonship, that he loved us in eternity past. And you know how long this thing, you know how long life and life eternal goes on for? Forever. That from eternity past to eternity future, God loves you from everlasting to everlasting. C.S. Lewis has this picture of watching a parade through a knothole. That this parade is coming, he can't see this whole side, he can't see where it goes, he only sees this little knothole. And we only see this little knothole of God's love, but we know that before and after that this parade continues. God defines himself in Exodus as, as this, this word has said, this long suffering, this, this loving kindness, this, this love that suffers along with us. This love that waits on the porch as a prodigal son is gone for, I don't know, years, decades, we don't know. That God's love is long. And if the length of God's love has no beginning and no end, I would just like for you to remind me about how your screw-up negates the love of God. About how the sin that so easily entangles you has negated the long love of God demonstrated at the cross. Just tell me again, I forget what you said. That it's wide, it's long, but it's high and it's deep. I don't know if you've ever gone swimming in a pool and you have like one of those inflatable beach balls. You try and push that thing underwater and you can't get it far or deep before it shoots up. Maybe there's a big guy and he kind of gets under his feet and he gets that deep down and that thing just shoots up. That's this picture of this depth to this height. As we experience the depth of our own sin and need and reliance on Jesus, the higher that we respond in praise. As we see his holiness, his goodness, his majesty, his wrath, that ball gets pushed deeper and deeper and we see it shoot up in response to praise. Jonathan, uh, Pastor Jonathan gave me this picture. I love this. It talks about we, we are here. And there's almost this knowledge of God and this knowledge of myself. And if I think, and I say this a lot, I just want to give you a picture. If our knowledge of God is like, he's the big man upstairs. He kind of knows what's going on. I'm going to pray for him. Do you know? Give me a couple bucks so I can buy a sandwich. Like if that's all the bigger God is and we're like pretty good. We pretty much got our act together. We just got to figure out, you know, Bible reading. Like the cross is going to be real small. But the greater our awe of God is, and the greater that our, our sin and our self-obsession, and that even the righteous things I want to do oftentimes come back just for me to feel good. And oftentimes the good things I do, I'm kind of looking out the side of my eye to make sure somebody sees them because my motivations, even the good ones, are filthy rags, the prophet Isaiah says. That as I, the knowledge of myself, grows in contrast to the knowledge of God, the cross of Jesus gets bigger and bigger because it's God's grace that reveals our sin. And sometimes I'm a worship leader, I get to do music, and sometimes I think those of you that sing the loudest are the people who get this the best. 
that you know the weight of your sin. And so you, just like that ball popping out of the water, respond in praise all the louder. That these dimensions all come together, the width, the depth, they come together at the cross of Christ. Where Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where God, the perfect one, became the addiction that you can't shake. He became the things that you say about people behind their back. He became your lies. He became your anger. He became your self-righteousness. He became your indifference because he who knew no sin became sin that you might become the righteousness of God. And this isn't just some cold court case that happened, but this is a creator God who, because of love, was nailed to a cross. And Paul prays that we, out of the fullness of God, might begin to grasp the dimensions of the way in which he loves us. D.L. Moody says, It is said of a Roman Catholic Archbishop of Paris that he, when he was thrown into prison and condemned to be shot, a little while before he was let out, he saw a window in a cell in the shape of a cross. And upon the top of the cross, he wrote height. And at the bottom, he wrote depth. And at the end of each arm, he wrote length. Moody says, When we wish to know the length of God's love, we should go to Calvary. Can we look upon that sea and say God did not love us? What prompted God to give us, to give up Christ? What prompted Christ to die if it were not love? Listen, I don't, I don't know who's watching this. I'm just in a room on a Thursday morning looking at the camera. I don't know who's watching this. I don't know where you're at with God. I don't know, I don't know if you carry with you church hurt. I don't know if you carry primarily just these philosophical, theoretical, theological questions about God as if he's under a microscope. I don't know if you have this flippancy to the divine and you operate out of just a flippant nature. I don't know where you're at. But I implore you today to not miss the cross. I am convinced as a pastor and as a follower of Jesus that I believe that. I'm not saying it's going to tie everything up with a bow, But almost all of our questions about God stand in light of the incarnation and in the shadow of the cross. That I can't explain all the theoretical questions about why this happens, why this happens, but I know that God dwells with us and that he died for us. And Paul says it's not until we plumb the depths, the dimensions of the cross, that the people that we hate, God loves. And the sin that so easily entangles us, that his love outlasts it. And that the depths of my sin are nothing in contrast to his holiness and grace. Now, when I begin to to plot myself in the dimensions of the cross, the dimensions of his love, it's the, the God of all creation starts to look different to me. And what Paul is ultimately calling us to is that we might go from awe to wonder to the mystery of the dimensions of the cross and that we might land at knowing God. Not just knowing about these things, but walking in communion and relationship and fellowship and friendship and partnership with God on high. Ephesians 3.19, the NIV, he says, And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. What does that mean? The, the, the NLT says may, says, may you experience the love of Christ. Not just have like an emotional, I cried in a worship song. No, he's like, I pray that you may experience the love of Christ, though it's too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. The Amplified Version, kind of a rare version, says, 
and that you may come to know practically through personal experience the love of Christ which far surpasses mere knowledge without experience. That you may be filled up throughout your being to the fullness of God so that you may have the richest experience of God's presence in your lives completely filled and flooded with God himself. Knowing God isn't about just attaining a goal or getting the test right, but it's about living into the completeness, the fullness, the abundance that God has for us. Life in life eternal. But the truth is that we have been told a lie about what the good life is, about what the complete life is, about what the full life is. That when I even say the abundance of God, somewhere in your brain you thought money, you thought stuff, you thought wealth. That's a, that's a, that's a bill of goods that we have been deceived into believing is what life is actually. But Paul says that we go from knowing about God to knowing God, and in that is fullness, completeness. But we've been told a lie that accruing more stuff, more control, more autonomy, more degrees, more self-gratification, more experiences, more highs, more products. Maybe it's winning elections, finding soulmates, landing dream jobs, and building castles. Our list continues that that is what life and life abundant is. And you know this, and I know this, that those things always end up leaving us wanting. But I said this last time I preached, and this is so important for us, John 17. Now this is eternal life. This is fullness of God. This is completeness. This is life and life to the full, is that we may know you, the only true God, in Christ Jesus, who you've sent. Um, we, for a long time, my young boy Camden, we, we bought Cheerios. You know, traditional yellow box Cheerios, just the good old-fashioned Cheerios. Apparently they heal your heart or something. Love Cheerios. That kid could just eat Cheerios forever. But you know, everything's getting expensive, and so I'm like, well, let's not buy a box of Cheerios. We'll buy like Wheat O's or whatever the off brand Acme version is. I made him a bowl of Cheerios, and that kid very quickly was like, get this out of my life. And he was right. They tasted like a bale of hay. They're horrible. But he knew, he knew the difference between the real thing and the imposture. And what Paul is doing today is he's inviting us into the real thing, experience and communion with the fullness of God. And my hope for myself and for my family, for our church as one of your pastors, is that we might go from knowledge to experience, that we might know Christ. And as Paul says in Philippians, to know the power of his resurrection and the joy of suffering with him. And there are just There are rhythms of getting things out of our life that crowd out, that rob us of joy in Christ. Maybe today it's like, I get rid of some stuff in my life. It might be sin. Get rid of this sin in your life that so easily entangles you. Easier said than done, but let's move on that. But some of it's just distractions. Some of it's busyness. Some of it is just dead time that robs us of the joy of Christ. Maybe we begin there. But my friends, there's no shortcut to the fact that sometimes knowing Christ is most evident in our sufferings. That's why James says that that, that it's our suffering that produces ultimate joy, that we joy in our sufferings. We glory in our sufferings because it produces this intimacy with Christ, refines our faith. That doesn't sound like the promises that the world gives us. No, 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 but we we don't want to just know about God. We want to know God. We We want to understand Him through our suffering. Sometimes it's through when we drop the ball, it's through our sin. It's when God reveals His grace to us by by uncovering our sin that we that ball gets pushed under and we we respond in praise and worship because of his grace. 
Sometimes our suffering, sometimes our sin, sometimes it's just the disciplines of our lives. And my friends, there is not some magical open the closet door. Woohoo, look, there's the fullness of God. I'll have four bites. But it is this journey of following Jesus that Jesus invites us into. I'll tell you this right now. It's going to push on you because it feels a lot better if we are safe and we got everything mapped out and we don't have to deal with people. We don't have to deal with our own sin or our own baggage or our own pain. We don't have to deal with stepping out in faith to hard situations, to sharing our faith, to inviting people to come along with us, to bearing our crosses. These are the things that Jesus calls us to, my friends. The fullness of God is not just putting your AirPods in and writing in a journal. It is walking with Jesus in the way that he has called us to walk with him. I just want to ask you a couple questions as we, as we close. For those of you that maybe you may be listening today, and and your faith is almost entirely cerebral, and I don't just mean like you're a Bible nerd. Maybe that's you. But for some of you, even if you don't know much about the Bible, you spend a lot more time thinking about the concept of God than talking with God. You have a lot more debates about the the philosophical, theoretical, moral dilemmas of God, the divine command theory, da, 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 than, than you do about what, what Jesus is calling you to and what, what you desire for him to transform within you. And I, whether that's you, whether you're a Bible nerd, whether you get hung up on philosophical questions, I would ask you this. Why, why do you love Jesus? Why do you love Jesus? What is it about Jesus that has captured your soul? Can, can you tell me about the time that you, you just experienced grace, that grace transformed your life? Like, like, do you love the story of Jesus? Do you love the teachings of Jesus as hard as many of them are? As you think about your, your life, your your relationship, your history with Jesus, maybe it's just a couple weeks, maybe it's decades. As you think back through what do you love about what Jesus has led you through, has taught you, has shaped in you, has formed in you, has pulled out of you, do you love Jesus? Because sometimes we have knowledge about God. Okay, I have to obey God, but Jesus says, if you, if you love me, you'll obey me. Do you love Jesus? Do you love the, the rescue or do you love the rescuer? Some of us get so caught up in the idea of the story, the fact that we have been saved. I'm saved out of my addiction. Hey, praise God. I'm saved out of my self-indulgence. Praise God. And sometimes we love the rescue, the story of the rescue, but we can miss the rescuer. That we don't throw our arms around the captain of, the, of the, the one who drove his ship to save us. But we just love the story of how we have been saved. And, and whether, it, whether it was Oprah or, or a 12 Steps program or a Buddha, we just want to be saved. But we don't love the rescuer who is Christ and the dimensions of the way in which he loves us. And I ask you this, as we look at the, the mystery of the dimensions, the way in which God loves, that we see displayed at the height and depth and width of the cross, has your cross gotten small? Have you believed a lie that you're like, you know what, I got rid of the big sins. I've, I've memorized a lot of scripture. I've kind of got this thing figured out. And do, you, do you find yourself getting frustrated with people all the time? Frustrated that they're not farther. I'm frustrated that they don't understand. I'm frustrated that they've backslidden. I'm frustrated that they haven't said yes to Jesus yet. Do you find yourself getting frustrated? And, and, and 
do you find that you put God on trial more than you take him at his word? You cross, your cross may be getting small. That as we follow Jesus, he calls us in the depth of relationship. And oftentimes, the more we understand our need, the more we understand his gospel or his grace, that we're like, this thing, these dimensions are bigger than I could have I dreamed. And Paul ends this whole thing by this prayer by saying, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that's at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And so Jesus, that's our prayer that wherever we're at, that we might wrestle, that we might contemplate, that we might just just talk with you about going from knowing about you to truly knowing you, Jesus. Forgive us for settling for Christian subculture, for worship songs that we like and books that are encouraging and, and lessons that help us live better, Jesus. Forgive us for settling for that for being good good Christian subculture people, Jesus. We want to know you, your glory. We want to know your invitation. We want to know you and your resurrection, your sufferings. Jesus, this is something we don't want to pray, but I pray that you might help us to, to trust you, to, to strip away the things that distract, that, that busy us up, that pull us away from relationship with you. Jesus, you tell us your burden is light to come to you who are weary and heavy laden. And many of us, Jesus, we are weary, we are tired, we are heavy laden with expectations of the world. And we lay these at your feet. Jesus, we want to walk with you. So as we jump across these rocks into the wonder and mystery and awe of who you are, Jesus, I pray that you might lead us, that the cross might become greater and that we might become less. It's because of Jesus we pray. Amen.